Our first reading is found on page 880 of the Foyer Bibles. It comes from the book of Daniel. The start of chapter 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him, because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So, King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then, these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. 
second reading this morning is from uh, Peter, chapter 1. It's on uh, page 1201. The Bible's in the foyer. And it's, we'll commence reading verse 13. So it's 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of the believers. Fear God. Honour the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust sufferings because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, it will be helpful for you to have uh, Daniel 6 open in front of you. Uh, that's the passage we're going to be working our way through today. Uh, there will be a couple of New Testament references, but they'll come up on the screen so you'll be able to follow along. Well, a number of years ago when I was a student at Moore College... Uh, I stayed at a friend's house for a week so I could write an essay. He and his wife both worked, which meant the house was empty for the day, which meant that I had peace and quiet to get my work done. Now, the day I arrived, they discovered evidence of a mouse living in their laundry. And my bedding for the week was a mattress on the floor in the room next door to the laundry, so I was pretty keen for that mouse to be gone. So we set a trap. But unless the next morning, the next morning, there was no mouse. Later that day, we heard the dog barking in the hallway. My mate had come home from work by then. His wife wasn't there yet, but we were there together. We discovered that the mouse was, sorry, the dog was barking at the mouse. And we thought, here we go. It's time for action. Deep down, I think we were hoping the dog would deal with it, but the dog just stood there barking at it. Thanks a lot. Anyway, we tried to work out a way to catch it. Now, it's 15 years ago, so I don't remember all the detail, but I do remember at one point it was hiding behind the gas heater in their main family room. 
And so my mate was there trying to coax it out from behind the heater and I was standing there with a garden fork ready to get it. And I had a couple of goes. I have to admit, I wasn't 100% wholehearted in my attempts because I wasn't sure I really wanted to nail a mouse to the floor and then have the blood and guts kind of, you know, everywhere. Now, if you're watching this from outside through the window, I'm sure you would have just been highly entertained with about half an hour of slapstick comedy as we attempted to catch this mouse. Alas, we gave up. We reset the trap and I think it was the third night eventually the trap went off and the mouse was caught. In Daniel 6, Daniel falls victim to a well-made trap. Uh, The Persians were now ruling the world after conquering Babylon. Darius was king and he wanted to develop some efficiencies in ruling the country. And so he appointed 120 satraps to rule the kingdom under the authority of three administrators and Daniel was one of those three administrators. And Daniel worked hard, he did a great job So much so then that the king wanted to promote him to be over all the satraps and administrators. He was doing the right thing, he was working hard to make a living and he was rewarded with appropriate recognition and opportunity. Like we're encouraged to do in the New Testament, he worked with all his heart as though he was working for the Lord, not just a human master. Now that was all good except of course that the other administrators and satraps didn't like it. They didn't want Daniel to be promoted. It could be because he was one of the exiles, uh, one of the foreigners living in exile. Perhaps it was a sign of uh, tall poppy syndrome, Persian style. Perhaps they feared for their own employment security. We, we don't exactly know. But how did they go about it? They, they, invested, they, they, they conducted a thorough investigation of Daniel's work to see if there was a weakness they could expose. Was he corrupt? Did he take shortcuts? Was he associating with people of ill repute? Was he ignoring workplace safety standards? Something, there must, there must be something that he's doing. They looked for a weakness, but they found nothing. So then they did what all good media people would do, I guess, is they dived into his private life. You ever seen this methodology work out? They dived into his private life to see if there was something there that could be exposed that would compromise his public standing and all they could find was that he was devoted to God. They cooked up a scheme then that took advantage of Daniel's faithfulness to Yahweh and at the same time played on Darius's arrogance and his desire to unite his kingdom. And the scheme they hatched is eerily similar to the one we looked at a few weeks ago, isn't it? That landed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the blazing furnace under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. A new decree was enforced whereby for the next 30 days anyone who prayed to any god or man other than to Darius would be thrown into the lion's den. This was to become a law of the Medes and Persians. In other words, it couldn't be changed and it couldn't be repealed. They set the trap, which would be effective to snare both Daniel and Darius. They knew Daniel wouldn't be able to help himself, but to pray to God. And Darius, while thinking they had come up 
was a great way to herald his power over the kingdom was actually being backed into a corner through manipulation and deceit. How did Daniel respond to the new law? If you look at your chapter there, we see it in verse 10. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel responded just like everyone expected him to. Let me ask you this question for a moment, though. Why do you think the author emphasises the windows open towards Jerusalem? Was it the sunny side of the house? Did it have the best view? It sounds a bit like Muslims facing Mecca when they pray, doesn't it? I remember when I was a uni student, I used to do uni part-time after work, so I'd done a day's work and I went to uni, I showed up to class a few minutes early and I thought I'd just chill out in the room for 10 minutes until the class began. And as I opened the door, I walked in and there was a guy on a mat facing east saying his prayers. So I just quietly closed the door and waited outside and sure enough, within about five minutes, he upped and left and we went and had our class. Why does Daniel face Jerusalem? Well, Daniel knew that Babylon was a great city by now. He'd been living in it for some time. But he also knew that Babylon, of course, was the face of human rebellion against God. Remember, it was the location of the Tower of Babel. And being the face of human rebellion against God, it was under God's judgment. On the other hand, Jerusalem was the city built by God. It was the city of God's promise, where God dwelt with his people and where God ruled his people. And although Jerusalem was presently a pile of rubble, Daniel trusted God to fulfill his promise that he would rebuild it and reign again. It was the city from which one day God would send his deliverer. And when you're living in exile, you're looking forward to that day when God sends his deliverer. So Daniel was a dedicated worker for the king but he also lived in light of who he was in relation to God. It's similar to the the focus that Paul gives us uh, in Colossians chapter 3. Richard's going to put the, the words up on the screen there. Remember this from Colossians 3? He says, it's on that screen. Oh well, lucky me. Um, you can all turn your heads if you want. <laughs> um, let me just quote it to you. Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He then goes on to to command us to take off what belongs to our earthly nature and to, to clothe ourselves with garments appropriate for God's people. And that's instructive for us, isn't it? It's right and proper for us to work hard in this world, to honour our bosses, to try to succeed, to enjoy the prosperity of our society. They're all good things, but we do so with our eyes on heaven, don't we? Knowing that we are part of a greater kingdom, Trusting in the promises of God. Knowing that salvation has been won for us in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
knowing that one day God will bring this world to an end. But his kingdom will endure forever. And so Daniel makes his choice to follow God. Now for Daniel's foes, this was too easy. He walked straight into the trap, didn't he? Verse 11, they found him praying and asking God for help. And so having caught him red-handed or red-kneed as it were, uh, they marched him off to Darius to dob him in. And it's at this point that Darius becomes aware of his own entrapment. Now as always, the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And as we read the story of Daniel on trial before Darius, uh, I think this story points us towards Jesus' own trial before Pilate. Uh, there are a number of parallels. So as we go through Daniel's trial, I want you to see if you can work out how this is, uh, points us towards Jesus and his trial. You see in verse 13, they begin with a false accusation. Have a look. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. Now, it's true, Daniel was praying three times a day, but did he really pay no attention to the king? Was he a traitor? Well, no. He worked hard for the king, so much so that the king wanted to promote him for his work. Likewise, the Jews accused Jesus of being a rival king, a man who instigates rebellion against the government. And again, it's true, Jesus is the king, he's the king of God's kingdom. But it's not true that he was leading a rebellion against the Roman government. Daniel was the victim of false accusations. The second thing is Daniel was innocent. Verse 14. When Darius heard the accusations, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and he made every effort to save him. When he couldn't save Daniel himself, in verse 16, he urged Daniel to cry out to his God to save him. Do you see the irony there? You've broken my law, but I'm going to tell you to cry out to God to help you. That night in the palace, the king couldn't eat. He, couldn't, he didn't call for any entertainment. He couldn't sleep. This is hardly the attitude and behaviour of a king who thinks that Daniel is guilty. Likewise, when we read through Luke chapter 23, for example, Three separate occasions where Pilate declares Jesus innocent. Another occasion when he says that Herod declared him to be innocent. And then, of course, there's the thief on the cross who said, we're getting what our sins deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Daniel was innocent. But Darius was trapped. Verse 15, they say to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. Darius was trapped by his own law, and he was trapped by the merciless determination of Daniel's foes to see Daniel thrown to the lions. Instead of acting on principle, he acted on pragmatism. Let one go for the sake of the other 120. Daniel had to go. Likewise, Pilate knew there was no reason for sentencing Jesus to the death penalty. He pleaded with the people to let him go, but 
they called for Barabbas. A man who was guilty of murder and rioting. And when the cries grew louder and louder, Pilate did what was politically expedient. He released the man who was guilty and surrendered to death the man who was innocent. And Jesus died. Darius was trapped by his own law. Well, the fourth parallel I want to bring to your attention is that of vindication. Daniel was vindicated. Uh, You see there, Darius rushed down the next morning, hoping against hope that Daniel would be okay. He couldn't possibly be okay. He spent a night in in the den with the lions. He couldn't. He called out. Daniel responded. Verse 21. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They haven't hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. God rescued Daniel because he was blameless in God's sight. He was vindicated. And this is reinforced in verse 23. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel was vindicated. He was righteous and innocent. And so God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. The law of God was vindicated. It was and remains the true law. And God proved once again that he was the greatest. Likewise, Jesus was vindicated, wasn't he? God brought him back to life because of his innocence and faithfulness. Jesus was vindicated. God was vindicated. And his purposes were vindicated and fulfilled. So overall, Daniel's experience is very similar to that of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, isn't it? He paid the cost for his faith in God. But as with them, God was faithful and remained present with him as he suffered. And just as his friends experienced God's deliverance, so God rescued Daniel. I think that sort of establishes a bit of a pattern that we experience in our lives as well. A pattern where being being a disciple of Jesus comes at a cost, doesn't it? Now, I love that God gives us realistic expectations in his word. Jesus said that following him involves the daily requirement to take up our cross. Paul in in Timothy says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's costly, isn't it? Being a disciple comes at a cost. But, secondly, God assures us of his presence at all times. God will never desert us in our hour of need. For to do so would mean denying himself and sort of confessing that he's not able to save us. But what does he promise? What does Jesus promise when he commands his disciples to be disciple makers? He says, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. God is with us all the time. 
and he won't desert us. Uh, the third part of the pattern, God will vindicate us. Jesus' resurrection assures us of the day to come when we will be raised. And as we read from Philippians 2 earlier, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And we will be seen for our relationship with him. God will vindicate us. And fourthly, God rescues us. God rescues us. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, he will rescue us from all our present difficulties. Indeed, some people suffer and die under persecution. But God will rescue us from a greater enemy, which is death. He may occasionally rescue us from the difficulties of this present life, but he assures us of our rescue from death. And so the big message of Daniel 6 is this. God is faithful. God is faithful. It's not, you know, given this situation, God will change our circumstances for us. But it's the message that given this situation that's been arrived at because of your faithfulness to God, be assured of his faithfulness to you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And we see this expressed in, in Darius's public declaration, if you have a look at verse 26. He says, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. God is faithful. What does this mean in day-to-day life? Uh, this year, Carlton had a new coach. You all know I love the Carlton Football Club and the AFL. Uh, last year we ran last and so we did what all good teams do under that circumstance. You sack the coach and try again. And we improved a bit. We went from four wins last year to seven. We went from last on the ladder to fourth last. That's improvement. But the Carlton coach, the new guy, he used to be a school teacher. And, and he lives by this slogan. Learning is getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Learning is getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And I wonder if a slight adaptation of that slogan is befitting of the Christian life. Instead of learning is getting uncomfortable being uncomfortable, I reckon it should be, Living as a disciple is getting comfortable being uncomfortable. There's a lot about living as a disciple that makes us uncomfortable, isn't there? Uh, by definition, Christians are constantly changing as, as the Holy Spirit works in us into the likeness of Jesus and transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. That involves change and yeah, often change makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? But it's not only the sort of internal workings of the Holy Spirit that makes us feel uncomfortable as disciples, it's the external pressures that we face, isn't it, that makes us feel uncomfortable. Following Jesus makes us stand out in the crowd. These days speaking publicly about Jesus is like volunteering to stick your head in the gallows. 
And I'm not just talking about the big ticket items that, that generate media attention, like you know the talk around same-sex marriage and what effect that will have on society. I'm talking about other things, day-to-day -day life, when, when you're confronted with well, what do you do when your commitment to work comes at a cost to your family or ministry? Or what does it mean to be obedient to your boss? Or what do you do when, you, when you're asked to do something that compromises your, your Christian morality or ethics, all for the sake of making a profit? What do you do when opposition rises and persecution comes our way? Or what do you do when you get accused of hate speech? And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, in reality, most of the hate speech is coming the other way, isn't it? How do we live in? How do we live day to day in this uncomfortable feeling of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? It can feel like the world's closing in on us. These circumstances make living the Christian life uncomfortable. How should we respond? Well, often in sermons we look for ways of applying God's word and 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 coming up with examples. Today I'm going to just directly quote from 1 Peter chapter 2 because I think that does the work for us. Because in 1 Peter 2 it speaks about serving the authorities God has placed over us. It speaks about what to do when we do suffer for being Christian. And it urges us to keep looking to Jesus as our example. You see the words up on the screen there? And Peter says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. It's right and proper to live the Christian life in obedience to those in authority over us. That's the right and proper thing to do. There is a line. Da Daniel showed us there is a line. Have a look. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. If there's a battle between submitting to the governing authority and submitting to God, you go with God, right? Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. There are times when we're doing the right thing that we're going to be persecuted anyway. There are times when we will be persecuted for doing the right thing in the eyes of God. And that's a mark of credit to us, isn't it? Like, How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Well, there's no credit there, but... If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. In other words, we're called to suffer like Christ, Christ suffered. If we're going to follow him, then we can expect to suffer too. Even when it's unjust. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
when we are under attack for our faith, we can be sure that God will deal with it one day. It might not happen in this world, but there is a day coming when all that will be taken care of by God. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There are going to be times when we get it wrong too, aren't there? And on those times we remember the price that Jesus paid for us, that Jesus has paid the penalty for sin. Our true home is with our shepherd in heaven for all eternity. And Jesus has made that possible for us by his death and resurrection. And the promise is that one day he will come back and he'll pick us up and take us to be with him for all eternity. That's the hope we cling to. So even when we're under persecution and copying it for being faithful, we know there's a better future to look forward to. There's a better world we're going to. There's a better king we're going to live for. And so we're to live in Babylon with our eyes and prayers fixed on the other city where the foundations and builder is God. Faith, humility, godly living, courage, they're all fundamental ingredients of the Christian life. But we need to be honest, Christianity is not for the faint-hearted, is it? It throws us into battle, bringing us under threats from all directions. And that's why books like Daniel and 1 Peter are so wonderful because they urge us to endure, they urge us to be obedient at all costs and more than that, they remind us that God will vindicate us. He always has and he always will. And so we're to keep looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your love for us poured out in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you again that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for the confidence that that gives us. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we know. We thank you for the sure hope we have for the future. And Father, we pray that your spirit would continue to work in us to make us more like Jesus day by day as we long for that day when that work will be completed and we live in heaven with you forever. But Father, in the meantime, we have to keep living in this world where we know that there are threats and persecutions coming our way. But Father, we pray that you would help us to cling to the promises in your word that you will never desert us, that you will rescue us and you will vindicate us. But Father, we pray that you would give us courage and boldness to keep standing up for Jesus. But Father, we want to see him honoured as Lord and Saviour in every community. And so we pray that you would help us to do that in the communities in which we live, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our local geographic community sporting groups, wherever we are, recreation groups. We pray that you would help us to honour Jesus in those communities. And Father, we know that sometimes that's going to come at a cost, so we pray that you would help us to pay the cost appropriately, that if we are persecuted, it's because of our faith in Jesus, not because of 
who we are or things that we've particularly done, but it's because of our faith in Jesus. And Father, we pray that in all situations you would give us wisdom and grace uh, in having conversations and relating with people that we might continually point them to Jesus, to the true shepherd, that they might also come to him in repentance and faith. We ask in his name. Amen.